0: Today's weekly roundup, titled Spectrum of Stupid, is brought to you by the one and only Molly McHugh. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's panel, returning to the Roundup is Frank Sadler. Frank is the chief of staff at Carly Fiorina Enterprises. He also served as the campaign manager for Carly's 2016 presidential campaign and was an advisor to former U.S. Senator George Allen of Virginia. Frank, it is always great to have you on. Welcome back to the show.
1: Well, thanks for having me. It's great to see all you guys.
0: Also returning to the Roundup, politicalology fan favorite, Linnea Erickson. Linnea is the senior vice president for the social policy and politics program at Third Way. Lene also served on President Obama's Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Lene, great to see you. How are you doing?
2: I'm so excited to talk about all the things that happened this week
0: we got a dense show today, and we've got a special flyby on our first segment today with the one and only Molly McHugh. Molly is a writer and researcher of Russian influence and information warfare. Her articles have appeared in Politico, Wired, The Washington Post, Lawfare, among many other publications. She's also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University and the lead author of an excellent, excellent newsletter called GreatPower.us. Molly, good morning. It's great to see you again. Thanks for having me back. All right, on this week's roundup, first, we're going to discuss Russia's increased aggression in the war against Ukraine, Tulsi Gabbard's decision to leave the Democratic Party, and Elon Musk's very, very bad take, a.k.a. his peace plan that might have been written by Putin. Next up, we'll discuss the Fed's fight against inflation and the risk that we could tip into a recession. And then finally, we'll discuss two court cases, one Supreme Court case about absentee ballots in Pennsylvania and a district court case about Biden's student debt forgiveness plan. And then there's more for our Politicology Plus subscribers only. We're going to discuss the leaked audio of racist comments by the members of the Los Angeles City Council and one of the most powerful labor leaders in the country. If you want to join us for that and a lot more, a Politicology Plus subscription gets you into our private ad-free version of the podcast where we publish additional conversations about strategy and analysis not available on the public show. There are two ways that you can get it. If you're listening to us in the Apple Podcasts app, you can navigate to The Politicology Show and tap the button that says try free. Or you can sign up directly with us at politicology.com slash plus. And I'll mention this again. I mentioned it last week. We just made some big updates. uh, And while everybody else is raising prices because of inflation, we went the other way and dropped the cost of the annual plan by more than half. So if you've been waiting to pull the trigger, now is a really good time to do that. We will dig in right after this. Okay. On Monday, Russian missile and drone strikes on civilian areas killed at least 20 people and wounded scores of others, according to the New York Times. And on Wednesday, representatives from at least 37 countries met at NATO headquarters to discuss the war and Ukraine's request for arms At the start of the meeting, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said the United States is committed to long-term support of Ukraine. There's a lot going on around Ukraine, Russia uh, this week and last week. Molly, I just want to turn it over to you for an update on the recent developments in the war, how we should expect fighting to look as we head toward winter.
3: Yeah, you know, there's, it was a big week. Uh, There was the the Kerch Strait Bridge explosion, which nobody is sad about uh, over here anyway. Um, Regardless of who did it, uh, there were renewed airstrikes on uh, Ukraine, sort of across Ukraine, far from the areas of fighting um, coming from Russia. Um, There's just sort of a change in the texture of panic from the Russian side of the line and a renewed fortitude from the Ukrainian sense of, uh, side of the line. And I think, um, as has been the case since February, the Ukrainians have really dragged everyone else along with them with what they are doing and how they are executing the war. Um, and I think we've seen that uh, continue to yield results. Uh, you had the Kharkiv offensive, which was a few weeks ago now, where they took back this enormous swath of territory extremely quickly. Uh, using a really brilliant deception operation, which I think no one uh, expected them to be able to do. Um, And it left us a little speechless, uh, or or our guys a little speechless, and it left everybody else a little speechless. Um, And since then, I think there was, then there was kind of this, well, now they're going to have to take a break and it'll be winter, and they've just moved ahead. And they've been pushing into the South and the East, into the territories that are either newly occupied or have been long held by um, Russian forces since 2014, Um, and it's just been sort of a series of pretty significant strategic victories for the Ukrainians, um, while the Russians have tried to enact this partial mobilization of their reservists, which is just like a clown show to watch. Um, but I think there's this texture that is coming together where finally eight months into this thing, um, there is less heel dragging on sending weapons, sending support to Ukraine from the entire alliance. Uh, a lot of the long-promised air defense systems are now actually showing up um, because uh, it's clear that those are needed to protect Ukrainian civilians since the Russian strategy now seems to be just to kill civilians because why wouldn't you? And I think an interesting, an interesting piece of the new airstrikes that they're doing, which is just worth repeating to the politicology listeners here who I know care about this, is... Um, What Russia is shooting at these cities, and they're using some of their new Iranian suicide drones too, but um, what they're shooting at at Ukrainian cities is surface-to-air missiles. So the stuff that you would normally use to shoot down missiles in the sky or other things, they're just lobbing them at Ukrainian cities, knowing that they're not going to hit what they're supposed to hit and blow up and kill people. Because they have a lot of them. They have thousands of these sitting in a pile, um, and they're running out of their better munitions. So this is what they're using. Um, But I think understanding that this is like the level that this is at is really important. Um, And how much we just need to understand. And I know these will be parts of the other things we're going to discuss in this segment. Like there is no negotiation table. There is no peace with Moscow. There is only winning the war completely um, Russia doesn't want peace when it's this, like the great magic wiggle fingers of, Oh, but what does Putin want? What Putin wants is war. And, uh, we need to, to help Ukraine win it.
0: So you, uh, created a really nice segue to like the the big thing I want to talk about today in the segment is this, uh, there, there's a lot of increased chatter around the likelihood of nuclear war. Um, And specifically on Tuesday, former Congresswoman and and Democratic presidential primary candidate, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, announced that she was leaving the Democratic Party. Here's what she said during her announcement. We got a clip of that.
2: I can no longer remain in today's Democratic Party that's under the complete control of an elitist cabal of warmongers who are driven by cowardly wokeness, who divide us by racializing every issue and stoking anti-white racism who actively work to undermine our God-given freedoms that are enshrined in our constitution, who are hostile to people of faith and spirituality, who demonize the police but protect criminals at the expense of law-abiding Americans, who believe in open borders, who weaponize the national security state to go after their political opponents, and above all, who are dragging us ever closer to nuclear war. Shortly after
0: Russia invaded Ukraine, Gabbard took to Twitter to blame Biden and NATO, saying that the war could have been avoided if they, quote, simply acknowledge Russia's legitimate security concerns regarding Ukraine's becoming a member of NATO, which would mean U.S.-NATO forces right on Russia's border, end quote. So she's also a regular on Tucker Carlson's Fox News show, claiming that the war in Ukraine is really about forcing a regime change in Russia. And so She's really just one of a bunch of voices now, the most recent one. Maybe she she made headlines because she's leaving the party. But Molly, I'd love to take this opportunity to hear your take on the not giving in to Putin is risking nuclear war argument because it's really uh, ubiquitous right now.
3: Yeah. You know, look, there's a reason that Putin pulls out the nuclear blackmail stick, and it's because of this. It does this. Instead of talking about what we need to do to help Ukraine win the war, we'll sit there and hand ring about... Oh, but what if there's a tactical nuke? Oh, but what if Putin does something crazy? And it's just, it's the the blackmail is a part of the information campaign that they're trying to use to slow Western support, uh, to convince us to pressure the Ukrainians to negotiate an end to the war, um, that we'll still see Russia having territorial gains, which is not acceptable, Um, and so I think that just seeing it in that, in that arsenal is important. And I think, you know, I was talking, I was just came back from the region and I was out talking to some of our great friends in the Baltic States and other places. And, um, the way that one of them put it to me, which is just the exact right way to think about it is like, we all know, and we talk about it in our community. If you let Putin do this in Ukraine, he'll do it to the Baltic States. He'll do it to Poland. He'll do it to other places in NATO the idea that anytime they can't accomplish what they want strategically, they'll just say, well, you have to do it or we'll nuke you. That same kind of pressure can be used in NATO territory. And then, you know, we're in, we're facing the same conundrum. But if you, if this, if the nuclear threat fails in Ukraine, he won't be able to use it again. And that's the important thing to focus on. Um, And I know everybody sort of says, yes, but he could, yes, but he would. And like, Like, I wrote about this way back in the spring. Other people have written about it as well. I know the sort of old Cold Warrior nuclear guys always sort of hold up the, but you have to take the nuke seriously sign. And yes, obviously nobody is like rooting for nuclear war or hoping that there's an escalation to nuclear conflict. But I think all of the factors we see indicate, like Putin's not the guy who wants to die in a blaze of glory. He would use, there's the potential he would use uh, a limited nuclear strike if he believed it will help the survival of his regime and himself. So the message to him just needs to be, if you do, that's it. Like, you're all over. And as long as we stay on that line uh, of not proportional responses, which the Biden administration has kind of fumbled some of this messaging a bit, but now I think they've been, more recently they've been much more clear um, no proportional responses, just like if you do, that's it. It's done. Like there's no, there's no way out for you. Um, and I think as long as we're clear on that, this threat of doing something nuclear fails, I think the other piece of that, that is important, of course, that the Ukrainians have been screaming about since the beginning of the war and everybody sort of called them alarmists for it, but it actually is quite important is what Russia is doing in Ukraine with nuclear power plants, um, including the, uh, former site of Chernobyl, Um, but more recently the Zaporizhia, um, power plant, um, where they're sort of taking control of these facilities, you know, imprisoning the staff, kidnapping the staff, forcing them to, to sort of live under occupation. Um, the, the potential, I mean, like a, a small, the use of a small nuclear weapon would be not something to root about, obviously, but it's one thing. And the, a nuclear power plant melting down is a forever crisis. So Uh, there's all these different things they're trying to layer on in terms of fear. It's all about just making us afraid and not having the will to move forward. And I think what we need to look at constantly is the Ukrainians. Uh, This is their decision. They know what the threats are to them. Uh, If they are willing to continue fighting, then we have to support them.
0: So... Lanae, before we move on and let Tilsa Gabbard off the hook here, uh, Dan Rather likened her announcement uh, that she was leaving the Democratic Party to, quote, someone you've already broken up with saying, that's it, we're through. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so I wonder, sort of, in brief, how you see this move impacting the rest of the Democratic Party, if they notice at all, right? What's the likelihood that she pulls any supporters with her? And does this even matter in the world of Democratic politics?
2: It matters less than than n- zero, negative zero. Um, I l- I love that description. I broke up with Tulsi Gabbard <laughs> such a long time ago. I'm so over it. But but really let's let's talk about Tulsi Gabbard's history on this stuff, right? I mean, Tulsi Gabbard secretly went to Syria to meet with Assad because she's always been this cuckoo bananas, right? She she has a very like very we'll call it different approach to um foreign policy than the current Democratic Party or the current Republican Party, frankly. And um and she has long been a sympathizer for horrible tyrants. And um and I remember, you know, when she ran um in the Democratic primary for president, just literally sitting in a bar in DC screaming, she met with Assad, sod. Like <laughs> This is not a person that we that we want to hear from. We've never wanted to hear from her. Actually, let's be clear. We did want to hear from her when she first got elected. She was kind of a rising star. She's a vet. She's, you know... Um, had a, had a good voice, um, for about five minutes and then she completely went off the deep end. And this is just another way to get more segments on Tucker Carlson. Um, and that's about it. Nobody within, um, anywhere in, in politics has cared what Tulsi Gabbard thought for quite a long time. Um, and you know, it's just, she, she needed something else to talk about on Fox news.
0: Yeah, went off the deep end and also possibly became a Russian asset if some former members of the intelligence community are to be believed. Uh, But speaking of bad takes on Russia, so there's one other thing I want to get to, Frank, which is last week um, Elon Musk put out a tweet with his Ukraine-Russia peace plan, in air quotes, Ukraine-Russia peace plan, in air quotes. Uh, He called for redoing the election of annexed regions under UN supervision. Russia leaves if that is the will of the people. Uh, Make Crimea formally part of Russia, as it has been since 1783, until Khrushchev's mistake. Uh, Water supply to Crimea assured. Ukraine remains neutral. Okay, it's a bad take, but it gets worse. On Tuesday, Ian Bremmer, who runs the Eurasia Group, has a PhD in political science from Stanford, teaches at Columbia, foreign uh, foreign affairs columnist, and editor-at-large at Time magazine wrote in his weekly geopolitics newsletter that Musk told him he had spoken with Putin and the Kremlin directly about Ukraine. And Musk also told him what the Kremlin's red lines were. After this came out, Musk denied the report, saying that he has only spoken to Putin once, uh, about 18 months ago. So there's a lot to unpack, right? There's a little bit of he said, he said. But I wonder if you can sort of enlighten us on what some of the problems can be and the amount of preparation that it takes for a business leader to wade into geopolitics.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an unfortunate, um, you know, uh, thing for must to do for a variety of reasons. I think I want to be thoughtful about my level of expertise when it comes to this issue. And so let me, let me kind of answer your question by, let me think about this from a political standpoint, right? What what concerns me most about what Musk did and what's going on is, again, I'm not an expert on Russia, but what, what concerns me is that I worry over time that this is going to fracture the Republican Party further. And I worry that what that will lead to is a majority of the Republican Party not supporting the efforts that this current administration is doing um with this alliance i think um the kind of neoconservative side of the party is very pleased with biden's response and that worries me because if that's the case if the bill crystals of the world say biden's doing a good job it i think over time i'm not concerned for this cycle but i think this war's going to go on and again there's experts who know far more than i do about how this all ends when it ends but let's assume for the sake of argument that this isn't ending tomorrow or anytime soon. What, what I worry about is if we get into this presidential cycle and we have all these primary candidates running in Iowa and New Hampshire that the, that leg of the Republican Party is going to fall off. And that will at some point impact what's coming out of Washington. And right now we have a pretty good a coalition in Washington supporting these efforts. Um, It's not perfect, but it's pretty good. Um, However, I I worry that what Musk does um, and how the Trump wing of the party views what the neocons are saying will eventually erode this coalition in Washington. And that, to me, is a terrifying signal um, about what could actually happen uh, uh, for this war.
2: You know, I do think Frank is right, though, that there is a real distinction between where the Republican voters and the Republican base might be on this and where Republican elites are on this issue. You know, I um, was just meeting with somebody who was saying uh, they had a really good sit down on Capitol Hill with uh, members of, of both parties and leadership from both parties and Everybody had a Ukraine flag in their office. You know, it was really uniting amongst elites on the hill. Um, but I don't think that's true if you went out and, you know, polled the Republican base. and i I think we just r- right now, what's happening is the base isn't really paying that much attention, which is really good in my mind. I, I hope it stays that way. So folks who who understand these issues in a deeper way, are able to um, make decisions without worrying about what, you know, those voters might be thinking about. Um, I think Frank's right that that might change at some point. And it really worries me because if we think about, um, you know, if you took a a ballot initiative of Republican voters, I don't think that they would necessarily support the actions that the administration has taken with the support of Republicans in Washington. And at some point they're going to figure out what their representatives are doing. And, and that makes me pretty worried. Yeah, and it yeah. becomes a
1: wedge, right, in mm-hmm. a primary, right? We're not in primary season. And therefore, um, to Lene's point, it doesn't really matter to the voters because it's not, we're not picking between R and R. But once we get back into that cycle, which as, as we all know is coming real quick, um, folks are going to look for a way to have contrast. That's what campaigns are, contrast, right? So the the contrast then isn't, your contrast with the left, your contrast then needs to become what's, what's my contrast with my Republican opponent or potential Republican opponent. And anything that is viewed as supporting Biden is, is a useful wedge, right? It just is. I mean, so it will
0: become positional just like every other issue. The, 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 the glow of the bipartisan nature of the the effort is going to diminish
1: and it's real money. I mean, that's the other side of this, right? Um, Again, I'm not the expert in any way about um, the federal budget or anything like this. But listen, I could write an ad pretty quickly about the amount of money that's getting spent in Ukraine that isn't getting spent on, I'll say, the southern border, right? I mean, if if I'm running a Republican primary (laughs) for the Senate, for the House, or for President, this is kind of a no-brainer, right? Like It's just a function of who's going to do it first, and then where does it go from there? But here's the problem. We're going to have a I think we're going to have a bunch of Republican senators running for president. And therefore, they're not only going to, I think, get on this bandwagon, but then they'll still have a vote in the United States Senate as this goes on. And that's and then we're going to lose some folks like the blunts of the world, the Portmans of the world who, you know, are going to stand with Ukraine. They're going to stand with leadership and they're going to be gone. So it's it's troubling.
3: Molly, uh, if I could maybe just add one thing because I think there's please. this stress uh, in the alliance too, worried about what American elections are going to mean. Because uh, despite you know uh, sometimes slower than I would love uh, support coming from the U.S. administration, it is the critical piece. The weapons coming from the United States are the critical piece. Um, And everybody understands that. And there is this extreme fear that midterms could mean disruption, that uh, as we go into our forever presidential cycle, it will mean disruption. And the problem with these things from these online clowns like Musk, and yes, I realize there is more to him than the online clown thing, but he seems to love that most, is it's you know, this is the the online clownery is the vein that Trump has cultivated so well, right? And you have a range of these personalities who kind of pop up and offer their two cents. And it now just sort of hit, like, the, the group that is susceptible to this, which is way more of the Republican Party than I would like, um, uh, you know, immediately responds to it. And Trump started this process of cultivating that piece of the party like the three foreign policy talking points he managed to instill in Republican voters during the twenty sixteen campaign was what's the point of this NATO thing anyway? They're not fighting terrorism. Why do we care about Eastern Europe? It's not close to here. Uh, and I forget what the third one was, but it doesn't matter now anymore. But like he to. <laughs> exactly, he didn't know either. <laughs> but but it's these these points, these like lazy oh it's not about here points, um, which you know, stand counter to what the Republican Party has stood for and defended, well, used to stand for and defend for a long time, Um, that it's it's like a really fertile lane. So when these guys like Musk, which all of the dude bros love, right? Like the Bitcoiners, the, the hardcore Trumpers, like all of the guys who live in meme world, they love these guys like Musk. And when they throw in their four cents, it just makes the whole discussion much, much stupider. And um, even though what he was presenting was identical to whatever the crazy, you know, peace plan through Giuliani and whoever that was going to Trump, like, it's, it's exactly the same nonsense we've been seeing since forever. Um, and I think anybody who's still presenting these ideas as if we would not understand they had come from Russia in some way, like why are you talking about Khrushchev's mistake? Nobody, nobody talks about that except Putin. Like, it's just like, nobody talks about this except Putin. It was really embarrassing. For me, it's embarrassing for Musk and he has defended it and is continuing to defend it. And then they, they all sort of lazily fall back on the, but Hey man, world peace deserves a chance. And that's where Tulsi and Musk are in the same spectrum of stupid. And like, It's just – again, there's like, yes, I would also like to not be in a war. Every Ukrainian would like to not have to give up everything they have to be in the war. And uh, the answer is just that Putin has never wanted peace in this war, and he still does not want peace in the war. And whatever that peace would be would be worse for us than winning the war – Um, And there's just no way around it. And everybody who is not an actual diplomat, like needs to just not think that they're going to be able to help in solving this problem. And I just like anyway, Elon Musk, go away. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard, please go with him. Perhaps you can both go in a rocket and fly somewhere else.
2: Um, But uh, I would contribute to that GoFundMe. Is there a GoFundMe? We can (laughs) start there. I will kick in on that. I've got money on that.
0: Today's weekly roundup titled Spectrum of Stupid is brought to you by <laughs> the one and only Molly McHugh. Molly, b- before we leave this topic though, uh there's uh is one other thing I wanted to ask you about, which is you are um currently raising money to help buy winter coats and the like for Ukrainian soldiers. Um can you tell us a little bit about what that's for and how people can help you out?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I will give a a short explanation of of some of this, but I think it relates to uh, a point that I was just making about kind of the texture of the war for Ukrainians. You know, no Ukrainian's life is untouched by this conflict, either because they are in the war, their families are in the war, they've had to flee, they have people who have left, they're trying to make it work. Every Ukrainian's life has been disrupted by all of this. And while uh, I do think, uh, you know, there has been more support coming from NATO countries and other allies, um, better support for Ukraine. The big systems they need are finally coming in and the flow of munitions has been good and needs to remain so. Um, The Ukrainians have built a million person plus army uh, extremely quickly. And the resourcing issues are everything, right? Like, the best example I can give you is there was the story in the post, I think it was this weekend, but about essentially it was just a a simple story about how Ukrainian units use drones on the front lines to give them, uh, to give the army advantage over uh, the, the Russian armor and tanks that are sort of hidden around waiting to blow them up. And the best piece of the story, which was like one paragraph in the middle that had nothing to do with anything else was, you know, there's two guys who were former cameramen for the local TV station, uh, who are now in the, um, they call them the territorial defense units. It's kind of like our national guard, but much more local to like a very specific area. Um, so two guys who are now in the territorial defense unit from some little town who were cameramen at the local TV station, who are sitting in the back of an SUV not a military vehicle, just some donated vehicle from somewhere, probably in the Baltic States because like thousands of trucks have been driven in from private donations. And that's what they're using for the most part in the war. So they're sitting in a donated vehicle on the back of this truck running a drone that they have crowdsourced themselves. Like the unit of this town bought this $40,000 drone for their, like the town raised the money to buy the drone for the unit. So they have this advantage to see where the Russian armor is so that they can communicate that to the Ukrainian artillery units that can blow it up. And um, just that piece that, like, the reason they're winning is because they are buying the stuff themselves so they can win. I mean, what a crazy, silly way to run a war. And thank God the Ukrainians are they – just, they just love this stuff and they figure out how to do it. And every one of these guys who's like a cameraman who's clearly like, I'm not going to be a sniper, but I have great skills to contribute to this war – Um, All of these people are figuring out ways to help their country survive and win, and I think uh, underneath all of this, what we need to understand is how much private aid, privately funded aid for all of Ukraine's fighting forces has been critical in this war. Um, It is now coming on winter. It's supposed to be a pretty cold winter, but even if it's not Dr. Zhivago-esque, which it usually is in Ukraine... um, Uh, There's just a huge shortage of uh, winter military gear because it's uh, a lot of people who need stuff. And a lot of the units um, are not, you know, they're sort of not putting themselves in a priority to get things because they want stuff to go out to the frontline combat units. But anyway, um, I am raising money to buy some gear for uh, some of Ukraine's sort of strategic communicators that sit in the army. These are the guys that um, are critical to collecting battlefield information and getting it to us uh, in the West, so getting it to the press, getting it to where it needs to go within Ukraine. Um, uh, and I've given the link uh, to it's just sort of a private fundraiser. Um, I need to get the stuff as quickly as I can, obviously, since it's almost winter. But I've given the link to Ron. He's going to put it in the show notes, I think. Um, okay. And if you are able to kick in even your coffee money from the week, uh, it It doesn't take a lot. Uh, We'll get coats and fleece for these guys first. If we have enough, we'll get boots and really exciting things like gloves. Um, But (laughs) if you can support it, uh, I would be really grateful. Um, And and writ large, if you're thinking about trying to to support Ukraine, there's a lot of good nonprofits you can support. There's a lot of great Ukrainian uh, organizations who have been raising money for the troops. But um, uh, support something, if not this. But if you can, uh, I would really appreciate your support.
0: Thanks for doing this Molly and we'll so we'll put a link in the show notes uh today. This came up really quickly and I know we're trying to turn this around really quickly so that you can actually go buy the stuff and get it to them. Uh so we'll put the link in the show notes, uh we'll include it in social and then folks listening at home if you can share that uh link with your friends and family who want to uh help buy winter gear for Ukrainian soldiers that would be that would be great. Um Molly, thank you so much for taking the time to be here for the first segment. Um we'll have you back soon.
3: Thanks for having me on, and I turn it over to these very capable colleagues to debate all of the other fun and wonderful topics that I know nothing about. Thanks, guys. (laughs) Talk
1: to you soon, Molly. All right, gang. Uh, Inflation.
0: As the Fed tries to tamp down on inflation, uh, it's walking a very fine line between trying to ease inflation and keeping the economy out of a recession. We've talked about this a few times. Last week, we spoke about the UN warning that continued rate hikes could create a global recession. Um, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell has said that they are still committed to attempting to lower inflation by raising interest rates. They have penciled in uh, additional rate hikes this year. They expect the Fed funds rate to reach 4.4% by the end of the year, Um, which is Just enormous, and by the way, to put this in perspective, this is the most aggressive rate hiking cycle the Fed has ever engaged in uh, in history. Uh, Powell has said that he's still trying to achieve a soft landing by restoring price stability with only a modest increase in unemployment. The Fed is hyper focused on trying to tamp down on inflation, but according to this week's CPI print, it remains near the forty-year high. Um, overall inflation was at 8.2%. I'm not going to go on my CPI rant again. Uh, everybody has heard it, uh, and how fraudulent a measurement it is. But anyway, um, uh, according to Politico outside a handful of progressive lawmakers, Democrats have fallen in line behind Powell, despite the chance that they'd most likely be blamed if a recession hits. Um, Elizabeth Warren though, has called Powell reckless and dangerous for risking the jobs of millions of workers. Uh, but Senate Banking Chair Sherrod Brown told Politico, quote, I don't have a lot of thoughts on what the Fed does, end quote. Let me repeat that. Senate Banking Chair Sherrod Brown told Politico, I don't have a lot of thoughts on what the Fed does. So, uh, uh, Lenay, you first. Um, Politico is reporting that Powell has broad bipartisan support. What, what are the political risks for uh, Democrats if we do fall into a recession?
2: I mean, I think the political risks are there no matter what happens, right? I mean, the reason that they're doing this and being so aggressive is that we've seen um, inflation be um, really out of control and and for for a while we pretended that it wasn't happening it was transitory it was going to correct itself and i think now we're very clear that it's it's not correcting itself we need to act in order to um you know cool the economy down and the number one way you do that um is for the fed to hike those rates and i think they're they're acting um they're it, let me be clear they're not acting at the direction of Democrats or even the biden administration, right? They are making an independent decision about what is best for the American economy. And I am not an economist. And so I I don't have, you know, I don't have a lot of thoughts about whether uh, <laughs> that is the right decision or the wrong one in terms of it continuing to increase rates. Um, but from what I have um, understood from the economists who work at Third Way and, and others that I've talked to, um, we need to cool it down. We need to cool inflation down. And this is how you do it. And it's painful. But um, the, you know, the risk of not doing it is painful, too. And I think it's really interesting that somebody like Elizabeth Warren or um, some of the, the more lefty folks are taking that tack because, first of all, unemployment is still extremely low right extremely low um and uh inflation hurts people at the bottom right it hurts people who can who are living paycheck to paycheck it hurts people who are really only buying necessities um like I you know it it is really it's very painful if you are a person who um, goes to the grocery store and only has a certain amount of money to spend um, to look around and and make decisions uh, about what you can and can't buy for your Kids to eat based on the fact that um, milk and eggs are now you know almost twice as expensive. So it's uh, it, it is a little frustrating to me that um, you know the the left of the Democratic Party is pretending that there is no downside to our current situation, our current trajectory. There are significant downsides, and as you said, um, it looks like consumer price index is going to be over eight percent. Um, and that that's a huge increase if you are a person that only has a limited amount of money to spend at the grocery store or uh, at the gas station. Um, and I think we need to understand that, um, that you know that that's a huge impact. And this this will also have an impact. But um, our current tra- trajectory is not without cost. And um, it's fine if you want to criticize the Fed, but you at least need to um, examine and admit the fact. That um, if we don't do this, people in the lower income quintiles are going to continue to be suffering and not able to afford their groceries, and and that's not a good that's not a good place to be.
0: Yeah, Frank. In an interview with Jake Tapper on Tuesday, President Biden said that he doesn't expect there to be a recession in the near future, but if there is, he expects it to be a slight economic dip. Um, and one of the things I've sort of been frustrated with, uh, uh, with the Biden administration over is the messaging around, uh, inflation and just how, um, it sort of, it sort of defies belief, um, in the way that they've kind of tried to spin some things like a few months ago, they were like inflation's at 0%. No, it's like, it's not, uh, uh they had a, they had a, there was a small increase and they tried to spin it at zero. But, um, if there is a recession in the next six to nine month range, uh, late spring next year, right? How do you think the balance of power in Congress will shape who bears the brunt of the blame? Given you know, we know Republicans are about to take the House. Um, how how do you how do you see this? Both the politics and the messaging, I'm particularly interested in.
1: Yeah, so I think what history shows is that the president, you know, he gets the benefit when the economy does well, and he takes the downside when there's a recession. I don't believe. Um, that the Republican Party, let's assume they take the Senate and the House just for the sake of argument. I don't suspect that they're going to take much of a hit on the economy um, being in the majority. Um, I just think voters, uh, when things are good, they give the president the benefit. And when things are bad, they give the president uh, the responsibility. And um, it's, you know, it is what it is. It's not fair, perhaps, but it, you know, to Linay's point, it's, you know, Biden doesn't get to pick what the interest rate is. He doesn't. You know, the other thing that's true about this inflation, right? That Republicans aren't going to say, and you're not never going to see them talk about this um, anytime soon, is this inflation is a global problem, right? This is not a. Yeah. This is not somehow isolated to the United States, right? If you read um, what's going on in Europe and the UK, like right, inflation's a global problem right now for a bunch of reasons that are way above my pay grade in education. But it is a fact that inflation is not somehow um, a condition just in the United States. Again, I don't think that matters, right, in terms politically. Like, the Biden administration is going to take this hit if a recession comes. They're taking the hit right now for the high inflation, right? And they're going to continue to take that um, as long as it happens. And if the Fed manages its way out of the inflation, I think it's going to come at the cost of jobs, and then the administration is going to take a hit when the unemployment rate goes back up. So it's a no-win situation for the Biden administration or whatever administration, right? Had this been a different administration, it just, politically, it is a tough spot to be in, especially when you're on the verge of facing, you know, whether it's going to be re-election or trying to hold on to Democrat control of, of any of these houses. So-
2: I mean, I think Frank is totally right that it's it's lose-lose, though, right? I mean, if you ask Americans right now what they think about the economy, the state of the economy, they, they don't think things are going well. And I think, um, you know, so we're starting from people don't think things are going well. We'll probably continue into people don't think things are going well. Um, and the fact that the unemployment rate is extremely low, we're not getting credit for that because the prices are going up. So... Um, and you know as as um smarter people than me say about this like the fact that um you you know you go to the store or you fill up your gas tank you spend money every single day um that that has a real impact so i think um people don't really um approve they don't approve of the biden administration's handling of the economy now they won't if there's a recession and so it's it might kind of be um you know a a political um, non-starter. They, they they don't think Democrats know what they're doing on the economy to start. Um, so I'm not sure that this is going to really have a huge impact politically.
0: Here's a just a wrap-up question: As We think about the messaging and who's talking about inflation and why. Um, so you've got you've got Democrats who. Don't want to talk about inflation. Democrats on the campaign trail, right? Who don't want to talk about inflation because it's a bad issue for them. It's a net negative for them. And you got Republicans who do want to talk about it because it's a it's a positive for them, and then you got existing leadership. And let's, let's take the Biden administration for one, right? Um, not campaigning, uh, has an interest in Democrats. You know, doing as best they can in the midterms, um, and so I wonder what's the best what what do you think of the way the white house has managed communicating about inflation so far um there's there's because there's two different directions you can go here right one is one is that you show compassion every time you talk about it and keep the the pain of the people at the bottom who are experiencing you know the worst parts of this at the forefront right and and that gives you a lot of sort of strong compassionate leadership goodwill or you try to convince people that it's not as bad or that we're actually, we're actually doing a good job. We, the white house or the democratic leadership, we're doing a good job. And Hey, look at how, you know, good inflation was this in this last print or whatever, and trying to spin it. How do what, what, what which way is smarter? Which way, what do you think?
2: Well, Ron, I, I have to call you a little bit hypocritical on this because I feel like you're always <laughs> mad at Democrats for not um, doing what Republicans do, which is um, spinning, spinning, spinning all the, the good things that we're doing. So, um, you know, I I was on a couple months ago when you were upset about us saying that there's 0% inflation because from one month to the next, the um, inflation basically stayed the same. Right. So there was 0% increase in the existing right. high inflation, Donald
0: which is Trump, not the same thing. It's not the same thing, but
2: Donald Trump did that a hundred million yeah, times, like, and and so has every Republican ever. So, uh, to the extent that you are invested in Democrats um, doing well because they're the only party that currently believes in democracy, um, you know, maybe you should cheer for the fact that we're spinning a little bit.
0: <laughs> you know? Well, I, well, what, D- actually, Trump Trump no, no I'm, the fu- one I'm. Who said? I'm here for the spin. I'm, okay. I'm here for the spin if it's effective. Here, okay. So the question is, what actually <laughs> yields the the best political advantage here? Right? I, I mean, I How to talk-
2: I think what uh, what yields the political advantages, inflation going down. I don't think that there's a ton of advantage for like, listen, I am on the White House talking points list. I get the emails. I read them assiduously. They're very excellent and no one else does. So like, I don't I don't think it really matters either way. I do think Democrats constantly have this problem of um, we we're torn between we want to feel people's pain and we want to take credit for the gains that we've made. And, you know, we saw this. um, The best example is President. Obama in his reelect in 2012, there was this huge argument about whether he should take credit for the fact that, you know, essentially he um, got our economy back on track after, um, you know, after the horrible, horrible situation that he was handed coming into office, um, or if he should be out there saying, I understand that there's still a lot of people that are hurting. And, uh, you know, I, I think my, my general viewpoint is, you know, oh, I feel your pain, isn't really going to give you anything. Like, people are like, okay, then fix it. Like, I don't really think you're going to get a lot. I think that works on other issues, but I don't think it works on the economy because people understand, like, what's happening with their checkbook and whether Biden feels their pain is, like, not helping (laughs) in any way. What I do think is important people often think Democrats don't care about the economy, that we're talking about 50 other things and that the economy is number, you know, 107 on our priority list. So to the extent that we're talking about the economy at all, I think that's good. And um, and I'm here for the spin. I don't think it's going to necessarily, um, you know, have, have a huge impact, but I do think we need to make sure that we don't look like we're changing the subject because the economy matters to people and basically like, oh, what about abortion and guns and 80 other things? Those things matter to people too, and the economy matters to them. So anything we're saying about focusing on the economy, I think, is a positive.
0: Frank, are you here for the spin?
1: I I have a slightly different view of this, right? So I think Lynne's absolutely right that the Democrats, they start in a deficit when it comes to the economy. So ignoring it only plays that card worse, right? Like there's no reason to do that when you're already in the hole. Um I think the administration and the just let's use the administration as a placeholder for the Democratic Party. I think they they mishandled this completely. I think they needed to from the start acknowledge it that it's a problem because it is a problem, right? It it is very clear that high gas prices impact People, it's just a truth. High milk prices impact families. So you you can't spin your way out of that. What you could have done is acknowledge that it's a problem and then talk about all the things, all the levers that you're going to pull to try to fix them and that you're going to continue to pull those levers as long as it takes until people feel better and um, inflation falls. And they needed to drum that day after day after day after day. And they should have been doing it literally the moment they saw those numbers. And second, they should have started blaming people on day one, right? They should have talked about the reckless spending that occurred under Republican control. They should have talked about the reckless Fed policy for 20 years that's gone on. This free cash that flooded this market. They needed a boogeyman and they needed to acknowledge it, right? Like That's what you've got to do. You've got to be on the offense, right? I mean, it's not spinning in the sense of, Inflation is real, and so you've got to go out there and talk about it. This idea that you're going to change the subject around Dobbs, or yeah, you can, you know, you got to chew gum and walk at the same time. So you could, you you need to touch those issues. But sorry, people walk into the grocery store every day. They drive by the gas station every day. You're not getting out of this by by talking about gun rights, right? Like it's just not going to happen. So you needed to be on the offense from day one. Blame reckless spending blame reckless Fed policy, and then talk about everything that you're going to do until it's done. And they don't do that. I don't know why.
0: I think the boogeyman, I think the boogeyman would have been a, I
1: I think that's a really good point. Yeah.
2: Well, we tried that Uh, for a second. We were like, oh, it's Putin's fault. And, you know, we uh, were like, we were like making, um, uh, stickers to put on, on the gas pumps over the Biden price hike ones that said it was like Putin's price hike. Right. I love those. Um, so that was, I guess, uh, the boogeyman thing, but to Frank's point, it was, it was too little too late and it was, and it was frankly too far away, you know, and, and, and people knew they're like, yeah, but this has been going on for a while. And the Putin thing just happened. Uh, I don't know. Um, But boy, would I love to hear a Democrat say reckless spending. That'd be great. We're not going to do that.
0: I would would love I would love love to hear that. That'd be amazing. Okay, on Tuesday, the Supreme Court threw out a lower court ruling that said Undated mail-in ballots in the Pennsylvania judicial race could be counted. That's according to CNN. So the justices vacated a May 2022 ruling from the Third Circuit Court of Appeals that ordered 257 undated ballots to be counted at a Lee County judicial race. So the ruling doesn't impact the outcome of the 2021 race, but it could have an impact on the Senate race in November. So the lower court's ruling in favor of counting. These undated ballots can't be used as precedent uh, within the Third Circuit's jurisdiction. And just to be specific here, these ballots were received before 8 p.m., uh, which is the deadline, on Election Day, but the voters failed to write a date on the return envelope. And the Pennsylvania law doesn't require an accurate date or a date between when the pres- when the absentee ballot is issued and Election Day. Uh, according to the Philadelphia Inquirer, any date on the ballot Uh, on the ballot envelopes are accepted. It could be July 4th, 1776. It doesn't matter. It would have been (laughs) accepted. Uh, uh, so, So during vote counting, the Board of Elections set aside these 257 ballots because they didn't have a handwritten date. And the board initially decided to count the votes, but the Republican candidate, David Ritter, challenged the decision in court. The trial court ruled in favor of counting the votes, but an appeals court in Pennsylvania overturned the ruling. A handful of voters whose ballots were set aside Uh, then sued in federal court, they were represented by the ACLU, who argued that the dating requirement violated a materiality provision in the Civil Rights Act uh, that makes it illegal to deny the right to vote based on an error that is deemed, uh, quote-unquote, not material. They lost at the district court uh, before the Third Circuit Court ruled that the undated ballots have to be counted. Uh, So this was a couple hundred ballots in a single county in an odd-year election Um, So we could see a far greater number in November. uh, And the Senate race in Pennsylvania could be really tight. And the governor's race as we've mentioned before, and you have pointed out specifically, is is key uh, to keeping democracy. So I wonder what impact you think this decision uh, could ultimately have.
2: I mean, I think it's really scary. It's one of those things that, um, you know, on its face, it's only about less than 300 votes in a race that was decided by more than that. So, you know, doesn't impact that. But really what the Supreme Court said. And, and first of all, let's remember that the Supreme Court only takes cases it wants to take. Right. Right. They didn't have to take this case. Um, I, that's not true in terms of there are a couple of things that they have original jurisdiction on, like when a state sues another state. There's So there's a couple exceptions, but this is not one of them. They decided to intervene in this case. They did not have to. And frankly, it's a little weird, right? Like, why do they care about 257 or whatever odd votes in this judicial race that's already decided? They Intervened in this case because they wanted to put down a marker that um, it, it's totally okay to throw out votes for lots of reasons that have nothing to do with whether that person, you know, whether you could ascertain who that person wanted to vote for, and that that's really what the you know the Civil Rights Act is about, and it's and it's what has driven. You know, whether we count ballots in in the past is what do you think the intent was of the voter? If you can figure out who they were trying to vote for count the vote, right? I mean, I, 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 obviously uh, have a very um, extensive experience in Minnesota politics. that we've talked about before and they had um, in counting the Senate race of Al Franken, which was decided by a handful of votes um, a bunch of years ago, they were, they were counting by hand and trying to understand like somebody wrote in lizard people that they were voting for. I mean, people write crazy things, right? And they're like, did you intend to vote for lizard people or you intended to vote for Norm Coleman or Al? Al Franken. Like, we, we sit and stare at a ballot to try to figure out what the voter was trying to tell us, and then we count the vote. And here we're saying, oh, we know who they were trying to vote for. We just don't care. We're going to throw it out. And that makes me really worried because, as you said, it, the, there could have been any date on, on the ballot. Um, and, it, and it arrived before the deadline. And so we know that it was dated before the deadline because it got there. So um, this really opens the door for judges to throw out um, and and you know election people who administer elections, to throw out lots and lots of ballots that um, it show the intent of the voter but have some other discrepancy in some way. and that is very, very worrisome.
0: So Frank it I wonder what you how you see the impact of this case in the in the broader landscape of uh, election related law you know changes and challenges um, around the country and whether this is ultimately a win for people who are who would like to see fewer votes counted and more selectively or if it's you know if it's now we have a standard right now we have a standard that and everybody knows what the rule is um that that clarity is actually uh important here and that that is actually going to serve um
1: serve democracy what do you think, what do you make of this case so instead of answering it specifically around the law piece what i think is a little concerning right is does this feed into the republican messaging around election security around what happened in 20, like to me that's again, I have more understanding and expertise when it comes to Republican politics, obviously, than I do of law. And so when I saw this, it does, it seems to me like it would be a very effective talking point on the far right around election security. It's just like another thing they can add to the arsenal of, and uh, arsenal around that messaging. And this one's an actual real thing, right? So like this actually happened, um, (laughs) unlike many of the things that they talk about. So That concerns me because um, we don't, this is now, let let me put my personal opinion hat on here. Like, I want more people to vote, right? It just seems to me like that was, I thought was the intent of this, this experiment we're trying to run in America was like, we wanted voters. And so, yeah, I personally, I, I, I'm dismayed by all of this, right? Like, I think all this stripping away of voting rights is, is a little terrifying, I'm not smart enough to know legally, did the court make a right decision? Was it, did the legislature do a bad job writing the law? Like all that, I'll let somebody else argue. But personally, it does all feel like there's a party that is moving towards figuring out ways to have fewer people vote. That's, that's sad.
2: And to your point, Frank, like these people did vote and we know who they voted for. So why wouldn't we count it right now? We're just saying uh, that we don't even want to count it when people do vote. And I think the reaction of uh, Dr. Oz to this, um, you know, to this ruling is really illustrative, right? He's happy that we're throwing out votes because he wants to be able to throw out votes in his Senate race because he knows that's probably his best way to win is to find ways to um to disqualify people who have in fact voted and told um you know told the state who they want to represent them because he's like well if i can throw out the votes maybe that's my way that i win this senate race
0: okay i want to close with one other uh court case um that is uh, relevant we've talked about the the issue before on the podcast Lene so on wednesday there was a hearing Uh, in U.S. District Court over whether to temporarily block President Biden's student loan forgiveness program from taking effect. Um, We were expecting the the judge to issue a ruling on Wednesday, but he didn't. He told the attorneys that they'd hear from him soon. Uh, Six Republican-led states filed a lawsuit in Missouri last month challenging the legality of the policy. Um, uh, During the hearing— one of the judges first questions was about standing which you know you indicated when we talked about this was like the big question mark who might have standing to uh to sue here um and you know he asked whether the states met the legal threshold to bring the case they argued the the here here's how they got to the standing question they argued that the policy would hurt them financially as well as a student loan servicer based in Missouri um they Claimed that the loan forgiveness policy would cause borrowers to consolidate federal family education loans owed by that owned by that servicer into direct loans owned by the government, and that that would cut the servicer's revenue. Um, so it's interesting. Um, on the same day the lawsuit was filed, the uh, Department of Education changed its policy so that borrowers whose debt was held by private lenders were no longer eligible for relief. Um, in order to win a preliminary injunction, the states need to demonstrate that the forgiveness policy will cause them irreparable harm if the injunction is not implemented. So, I, what I remember from the last time we spoke about this was that the standing question was going to be huge, and sort of there's there's the legally dubious part of the of the program, but it's not really clear how it would be challenged because really it's Congress here who would be the first stop to you know put a stop to it, but they're not going to do that. Um, so, what do you would you expect the grounds uh, for a preliminary injunction to be here, um, and sort of what do you what do you make of this initial step to? Challenging the program.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it's only a matter of time before we get a court stepping in saying that this is illegal. And I, you know, we've done an entire episode about this. So uh, please go back and listen to it if if you want to know more about why. But um, there are currently at least four cases that have been filed by different plaintiffs trying to stop this action. And um, I think everybody recognizes that if the courts get to the merits, if they decide the substance of the case, the Biden administration. Is going to lose because they're, you know, making up this power to wipe away half a trillion dollars in student loans that I think pretty much nobody thinks they have, um, including a lot of lawyers within the administration, which is why it took them so long to do it in the first place. Um, but I, I think, you know, what, what we're seeing right now is essentially legal whack-a-mole, right? They're they're seeing a case being filed, and then they're actually changing the policy that they announced in order to remove standing from a person who has currently sued, right? That That's how bad they know their case is. They're looking at a person and saying, oh, okay, how do I make sure this person actually can't sue in court? Oh, I'm gonna change the policy. So first it was a person in Indiana who said, um, actually this loan forgiveness is gonna make me worse off because one of the things that red states have started doing is saying, we're gonna tax your loan forgiveness. So we're gonna tax it essentially as a gift that you've gotten 10 or 20, $1000 from from the Biden administration which is you know it's a that's it's a it's a creative <laughs> creative <laughs> response and he this plaintiff said oh well um, i'm actually about to have my loans forgiven under the public service loan forgiveness program and so and that wouldn't be taxed so the fact that you're going to do this other kind of forgiveness um, is worse financially for me well then the biden administration came out and said oh jk jk no if you um if you don't want it you don't have to have it okay well that person doesn't have standing anymore right now because they're not harmed um but now now we're seeing they had said oh these um these fell loans, they're called, um, were gonna be um, part of the forgiveness. And then they were like, JK, JK, no, 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 the fell loans aren't part of it because they literally know they can't win in court. So the only thing they can do is keep changing their policy every time someone sues to try to make it so that, you know, you've solved their problem and then they can't continue their case. And uh, you know, I think it's it's really frustrating, given that I, I, I've i always thought the Democrats were the ones that, you know, cared about governing well and setting precedent and, you know, doing things in a sustainable way that are actually going to help people. And, you know, there were people that thought their fell loans were going to be forgiven. And all of a sudden, because this case was filed and because the administration was afraid they were going to lose, now now they got their forgiveness taken away. What about those people? Those people were promised $20,000. They don't get it anymore. Like, this is not how we should be making policy. And and I think, you know, it's frustrating to watch and it's going to continue. And as I've said in the past, if these, you know, if they continue to pull the rug out from under enough plaintiffs, um, they might be able to hobble along for the next couple of months until the election. That's that's all they care about, right? This isn't about good policymaking. This is about trying to goose, you know, young people's turnout in the election. Um, then they're trying to hobble along until after election day. Um, but they know that if and when Kevin McCarthy becomes speaker, he will have standing immediately um, in January. And this will be, that'll be the end of it. So I think it's really cynical. It's very frustrating to watch.
0: Man, there's so much politics here, Frank. They're like, okay, so as Lene mentioned, this was, I, you know, it's kind of obvious on its face. This was to juice turnout in the midterms. Now they're trying to hobble along until we get to the election to like, but, but then there's also this, this potential blowback from you know for democrats if it gets blocked between now and election and then like you know i wonder how you think republicans could use it to make an incompetence argument if they if they would go that route and then 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 to lanae's point if insurrectionist speaker kevin mccarthy <laughs> see like what i did there uh then, then then sort of has standing this immediately goes away uh you know, then then they actually have a boogeyman, right? Because this, this is sort of a broadly popular thing to the people who get it, right? Uh, then they get to say, Kevin McCarthy took your student loan forgiveness away. So there, there's there's multiple dynamics to this. And I wonder how you think it nets out.
1: Yeah, so um, first off, I think it's very clear that this was purely a political play. That, you know, to Lynne's point, like everyone who understands this issue knows that the law behind it was fraud. This was a play. I think the best outcome for the Democrats is exactly what you just said, Ron, which is that House Republicans put it in such a way where it gets pulled back. And then Biden says, I tried to do it. Kevin stopped me. And that's good politics for the Biden administration. Um, So I'd like to give them enough credit politically that, that that they thought this through and that that's been the strategy from day one. From a policy standpoint, I think they just kicked those people out of the room, right, is what happened. And <laughs> I, I haven't worked in the white house. You're
2: absolutely right. Yeah. I know those people and they were kicked out they of the room. They were kicked out of the room, room right? right? Like, Thank you. Th- this happens,
1: uh, uh, unfortunately, this happens, you know, in every administration, right? There are people who understand policy, who advise... Presidents and senators and members of Congress. And then there are times when those people are said, okay, we understand. And then the political people come in the room and say, okay, here's what we're going to go and do. And that's what this is. And it may end up working to the Democrats' advantage. I, you know, I don't know enough. Lene Lin, knows so much more about this than I do. Like, I don't know enough about the turnout model for Democrats in a midterm. You know, I mean, the truth is, right, politically, um, the only hope Democrats have in November is turnout, right? Like it's not persuasion, it's turnout, right? Their only hope is district by district that somehow they turn out this 2020 coalition. And so I uh, my guess is that when they dive into the math on this deal, part of it is this coalition involves young people. And so there was enough polling that said, okay, if we pass this, if we, by executive order, get this done, we can turn that, number up just enough to bring that coalition back up to the number we think we need. So we'll find out, right? We'll know all of this on in the middle of November when we start to look at what the turnout looks like. And if the Democrats turn out a bunch of young people and they win some races they otherwise weren't going to win, then this was a good politics. And if they don't, then, you know, I don't think they have much to lose on this, right? Like, yeah, is it bad policy? Yes. Is it bad governance? Yes. Does it really matter politically for those things? I don't think so. I don't, Republicans are not running around, running ads or talking about this issue because it's bad, because of its bad governance. They're, they're, when they talk about student debt forgiveness, what they're talking about is that it's just bad thing to do, right? That like, it's the wrong thing to do, right? And- Well, it's classic That's right. right?
0: That's that's what they'll take. Yeah, they're not going around saying, oh, the Biden
1: administration doesn't know how to, pass good policy, right? Like they don't know how to govern. That's right. not the argument. So right. I think for the Democrats, <laughs> I don't think for, for the Democrats, I don't think they have much to lose. I think this is a smart political play. We'll see if it works, but I don't think it was, I'm not so sure it, it's going to hurt them.
2: I mean to your point there's only been I think one ad that I've seen yeah. that's been run on it which actually a little bit surprises me because the way that um you know voters have um reacted is very mixed you know there are a lot of people who are saying this isn't really fair um, there's a lot of people who are saying wait we're spending all that money and this isn't actually fixing the problem in any way you're not addressing the causes of this problem you're just giving a bunch of money to schools that are going to continue to fleece people, um, but it it really hasn't come up as much. And and maybe it's because there's just so much else to talk about: crime, inflation, immigration. But um, it is it is interesting to me that there hasn't been more um, attention paid to it politically.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the truth is and you said, Lene, right? Like, if I'm running a, a race right now against a Democrat, I, I am not talking about anything other than inflation every minute of every day. Maybe there's some crime mixed in there, depending on what state I'm in or district. But like at the end of the day, this is about gas prices. And if that, if for the next, what are, what do we got three weeks? If that is all you drum, you are in a far better spot than if you're talking about literally anything else. All right.
0: Now that we're up to speed on a few of the biggest stories this week, let's talk about what we're watching under the radar, over the radar, wherever on the radar screen it appears. Lene, what do you have?
2: You know, I always like to look at ballot initiatives, which I think are a thing that um, people forget about, right, that we're so focused on the horse race and who's going to control the House and Senate. Um, But there's a lot of things that are directly on the ballot. um, This this election cycle, um, including some more um, abortion ballot initiatives like we saw in Kansas. Um, So, for example, in Kentucky, um, there's a lot in blue states, which isn't going to really have a political impact. um, But there's a ballot initiative in Kentucky about abortion rights, which is really interesting to watch um, to see, you know, does that impact turnout? Um, how does that, you know, does that help Democrats? We saw, um, you know, such an overwhelming response in Kansas with um, women registering to vote. Um, so I'm, I'm watching that. But the one that is really interesting to me is another example of where um, maybe Democrats are opposing something that I think is good governance, um, which is in Nevada. So So in Nevada, there is a ballot initiative um, to move towards the um, final five voting um, like we saw in Alaska. Alaska has final four, but um, the idea of instant runoff, rank choice voting, um, where in in the primary, everybody votes in the same primary. You pick your top person. When you get to the general election, you have the top four in Alaska. This would be five um, on the ballot. And then you rank them one, two, three, four, five. Um, And, you know, what we saw the impact of this in Alaska was that Sarah Palin doesn't get to be in Congress, thank God. She didn't make it because people didn't like her. Um, but you know, as we've talked about so often, the primary process really um, advantages the extremes and um, dis- disempowers the the middle, and even people who um, just don't identify with one party or the other. They don't get to pick anything until November, and then they might hate both choices, and they have to pick from the lesser of two evils. The ranked choice. Ranked choice voting would solve that problem, and more states are kind of looking into it. Cities have moved in that direction. Nevada um, it has now a ballot initiative to move in that direction, and the Democrats are opposing it. And do you know why? Because they've won (laughs) recently, and so they've decided, no, 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 we don't want to change the rules. We're currently winning. We're fine. right now, anyway. We're fine right now with this thing. And I think it's really short-sighted because, you know, um, Catherine Cortez Masto um, may be the the most endangered incumbent in the Senate right now. Tough race. Really hard race and she might lose. And so to, uh, you know, try to undermine a really good governance um, kind of proposal, just because you think you might currently have a little bit of political advantage, so short sighted. And I really wish that they would take another look at it because it is, it is a really good idea. It would be it would make our democracy more representative and, um, and it wouldn't even go into effect. It needs to pass twice in Nevada and then it would go into effect after that. So it wouldn't go into effect for a while. It's not like it's going to impact, you know, this current this current race. Um, so I really wish that folks would take another look. And if you are in Nevada, um, take a look at that ballot initiative um, and and really think carefully about it. Don't just follow what uh, the you know top Democrats have said, because um, because it's worked out quite well for Alaskans to get um, somebody that the majority of Alaskans feel represents them. And I think that's a good thing.
0: Yeah. Big fan of ranked choice voting, totally. In Nevada, we do this thing where we ask you twice if you're a voter. Right. Wait, are you are, are you, you sure, sure you, want you want to do want that? that? So they have yeah. to do it. Twice. Are you sure you want to do that? Yeah, right. <laughs> like a confirmation thing. Anyway, uh, Frank, what do you got?
1: So um, I'm most fascinated by figuring out and seeing what's going to happen in Georgia with Herschel Walker, right? So you know, if you think back to the politics of you know pre 2014 or 2015, really you know, Herschel Walker would be not, he would be so far down right now. No money would be going in the state, right? Like you have all these articles about money going to Pennsylvania and Nevada and Arizona, right? Like all these donors moving money in the NRSC and all this. And we're not seeing that. And so I'm really interested to see if not so much whether or not he wins or loses, because if he wins, it'll tell us something really profound, right? Which is that this is now just a hundred percent team sport that literally it doesn't nothing else actually matters. However, he could lose and that still may be the case. And so I'm interested to see Oz is a bit of that too, though. I don't think he's nearly as crippled as Walker should be right now. Um, but for me, that's just fascinating to see, right? Like when, you know, when I was, um, you know, when I think back to some of the races I was involved in, right? Like things like this were were catastrophic. Oh, yeah, I mean, just game, game enders. Yeah. Uh, so it doesn't feel that way now, and that's terrifying. Just in terms of, you know, you think about the folks that we want representing us. It, set aside policy for a second, but character. And if if he if he wins, then we know that this is a hundred percent a team sport and that's, yeah. And that's unfortunate.
0: And that Mitch McConnell might be wrong about, uh, candidate quality matters. Yeah, that's right. Which
1: leads (laughs) to this next piece, right? Which is so, yes. So it becomes a team sport. Then I think you see more. So we're already, I think this has been true for 20, 30 years, right? We're we're losing good people who want to run because of a variety of factors. Now, if you then put on top of it that none of this matters, then you'll get even fewer of those people and you'll get more of the people who are, I have no better way to say it, just unqualified. And that's, when you think about this 2024 cycle, that becomes really scary. On both sides, right? This is this is not a R or D problem. This is a American problem, right? Because this can happen just as easily on the left, right? If Once everyone realizes it's just the letter next to your name, then both parties going to figure out it's all going to just be winning, right? Because that's all that really matters at the end
0: there's was a piece we almost included in the roundup today for discussion. We didn't have time, but but basically about how you know the incentives for running for higher office now are sort of to to juice your Instagram influencer, you know, clout and uh, and sort of like the celebrityification, if that's even a word, of 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 being in politics, working in right public service, and yeah, uh, the so the incentive structures are sort of across the board, systemically um, just corrupted, but. That's a different podcast. (laughs) Uh, All right. uh, Let's flip over to Publicology Plus. Uh, Before we do, where can everybody find you on the internet, Lene?
2: I'm on Twitter, at Lene Erickson. Frank, I don't know if you want
0: to be found these days. So I'm not on the internet. (laughs)
1: Um, You're you're
2: not on the internet.
1: I don't use use the internet for those
0: things. If you want to get a touch with Frank, send us an email. We'll forward it to you. No, (laughs) it's snail mail.
2: Definitely snail mail.
1: I know. Actually, yeah. (laughs) Ron can give you my address. You can... Send me a postcard. But-
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcast app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.